They're making lots of five hundred dollar bills. The government is just sending out. They're not even sending money. They're sending checks or
last week's bulletin, how would that do? <laughs> so we don't have any, we don't have any bulletins yet. So I think they're working on it, but we, we'll, we'll get going anyway. So, so Jared's delayed, he'll be here probably in a few minutes. And we don't have any bulletins, because Rachel's not here. And uh, I'm, uh, I'm winging it. I do have one announcement that I know you don't have, and that there's a dinner cookout scheduled for next Sunday, June the 13th, and uh, the uh, meats will be supplied, bring a dish to pass, and there's a sign-up sheet. Do you have a time for this, Phil? Time of day? Right after church. Right after church. So, plan on... Uh, it's here, at here at the That's church. Yeah. Here at the church after service next Sunday. Um, I don't really have anything else. Do you know the scripture for meditation? Off the top of your head? <laughs> Everybody's on the spot. Oh, thank you. Let's do that. First Peter 4, 7 through 11.
let's stand together and hopefully Phil, would you open for us? Lord God, Heavenly Father, as we come before you this hour, we come with a sense of thankfulness and gratitude in that you have saved us from the pits of hell, that you have given a son to hang on a cross and die and spill his blood so that our sins would be washed away and remembered no more. We pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit Has arrived. So, do we do we have a hymn number, Hannah? Three fifty-five. Three fifty-five in. Five in the tree.
have a favorite hymn this morning?
King of Sodom, the King of Gomorrah, the King of Admah, the King of Zebium, and the King of Bela, that is Zor, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Siddim against Kedlormar, the King of Elam, title King of Goyam, Amraphel, King of Shinar, and Ariok, King of Four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of the tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. Then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew, nephew Lot and his possessions. since he was living in Sodom. One who had escaped came and reported this to Abram, the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre and the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Aner, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Obah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative lot and his possessions together with the women and the uh, other people. After Abram returned from defeating Kedlormah, and the kings allied with him. The king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shiv. This is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high, and he blessed Amos. Okay. Ask that the Lord will bless this reading. Hymnal again and turn to number 
Our scripture text is Genesis 14. In our study on the patriarchs, we looked at two different life paths that Abraham and Lot took when they were confronted with the problem of too much livestock, too little pasture land, and very limited water supply. Think about this, the land, all of it, the land, all of it was gifted to Abraham by God. To Abram. Lot had no claims on the land whatsoever. But graciously, to end tensions between himself and Lot, Abraham gave Lot first pick of the land, and Lot chose, get this, the entire Jordan Valley. If you know anything about your geography, look at your little map in the back of your Bibles. The entire Jordan Valley. And in so choosing, he set his homestead among the wicked cities of the plain. And may I say that that began Lot's downward spiral spiritually it all began with his eyes it began with his eyes scripture says he looked and he saw yeah he looked and he lusted for the verdant jordan valley which was well watered plenty of grazing grass and so on something else happened there Scripture says he pitched his tent near Sodom. You know, people think they can play with fire by keeping their distance and they won't get burned. That's the way it starts out. Eventually, however, Lot was found living in Sodom. That's why I say it began his downfall. It was like a magnet. Sodom drew Lot and his family into the city from the suburbs by the allurement and the excitement of city life. I mean, that's where the lights were, the parties, the theaters, the conveniences. was in the city. Then finally we discovered Lot sitting in the gateway of the city, the scripture says. What's the gateway? Well, that's the place of judicial rulings. That's the place of government. That's a place of oversight of the city, its rules and regulations. But I can say that Lot was never fully accepted as a judge in the city by the wicked citizens. He was considered a joke by his very sons-in-law. Even his own wife. His own daughters had to be compelled to leave Sodom before the fireballs began to fall from heaven. And Lot's no-name wife is only remembered by her disobedient look back wherein God crystallized her into a pillar of salt. 
What a terrible legacy. Well, today's study takes us to another incident in Lot's life, this time one in which he was a victim of war for being in the wrong place at the wrong time. As we come to our study, let's ask the Lord to teach us. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will teach us from the word of God. I have nothing to say apart from the word of God. And it is your word that refreshes our souls and teaches us spiritual truths. And helps us as we struggle with our own problems in life. Let us be attuned to your word always. Even most preaching today in our country is social gospel. Oh, maybe one or two verses of scripture are read and that's it. The rest of the time is given to be good to your neighbor, feed the hungry, clothe those that don't have clothes. All of them good in themselves, but not the gospel. Not the gospel. Because people are hungry spiritually and they need to be fed in their souls and their clothes They're naked before God and they need to be clothed with the righteousness that comes only from Christ. So help us today as we study the word of God and understand that the battle is the Lord's. Life in this world is the enablement that comes from God for the believer. Pray that you'll be blessed by the truth of your word. And that we will be blessed by hearing it and applying it to our lives by your Holy Spirit. And we do thank you for our written copy of the Word of God. That each of us can have a Bible and it's in our own lap this morning. But there are people throughout the world today that still do not have written copies of the Word of God. How blessed we are. Now honor yourself, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're in Genesis 14 today, and we're looking at the subject, the battle is the Lord's. In the scripture reading this morning, primarily indicates that the kings of the Jordan plain, Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zebulun, Bela, which is known as Zor, Five all total came out against four kings headed up by Ketolaimer, king of Elam. So five against four. But the four king federation was the stronger of the two. They had been sweeping over the northeastern territories and addition the states for seven. And they conquered that says the whole territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites, who were living in Hazazon Tamar. Hazazon Tamar is located directly south of the Dead Sea, which we know as the Salt Sea, verse 3. So there was a U-shaped occupation around the base of the Dead Sea and up on the east side of the Jordan. 
What the Bible atlases do not show is the exact location of the Valley of Sidim. Verse 8, in which were located the cities of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and so on. They don't show them because the ruins of these cities are submersed in the waters of the Dead Sea since God's fiery destruction. And so our text is dealing with a time before then. Now, the question arises, why would the federation of four kings come out against the federation of five? Verse 4 tells us that for 12 years, the federation of five had been subject to Keterleomer, but in the 13th year, they rebelled. Simply put, the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and the others, they stopped paying their taxes. We're not going to pay you anymore. And so the battle line was drawn in the valley of Sadim, which had natural impediments. Verse 13 says, or verse 10 rather, that they had tar pits. And as the battle ensued, the tar pits claimed the lives of the soldiers of the Viking Federation, while others fled into the hills. Verse 10. What was the end result? The end result was that the four kings whipped the five kings. And in addition, verse 11, they seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, and then they went away. They also carried off, here it is, Abraham's nephew, Lot, and his possessions, since he was living, oh no, in Sodom. In Sodom. Verse 11 tells us that in the plundering which usually follows a successful battle, the four king federation entered the city of Sodom where Lot was living. They conscripted all of his possessions with him and carried him off into captivity. Poor Lot. He's in trouble again. And he's in trouble again because of his association with Sodom. He was swept up by the fortunes of war. And in his case, he was now a captive and being carried away far to the north. Verse 14 mentions the town of Dan, which was the foremost town in Israel. It's about 40 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. So if you have a Bible map in the back of your Bibles, find the Sea of Galilee, which is the pretty good-sized sea, and this Dan is about 40 miles north of that. And there is reference in verse 15, a town called Hobah which itself was north of Damascus. Oh, Damascus? Now we're outside Israel. Now we're part of the Syrian Empire. 
Wow. King Ketelamer was moving with the speed of the Nazi Germany blitzkrieg tactics. Boom, boom, boom. Blitzkrieg, the lightning war. The lightning war. He hit fast, he hit hard, he hit thoroughly, and the kings of the fivefold federation hardly knew what hit them. That's really true. Before they could do much in terms of resistance, they found themselves chained hands and feet in manacles, trudging north as prisoners on a dusty slave trail, soon to be sold on the auction block to the highest bidder, never to return home again. You should know that the criticism of this account by some Bible critics, that none of these cities existed, but were simply myths, that criticism has been fully debunked by the archaeological finds between 1974 and 1976. As modern as that. What happened in those years, 1974 and 1970? Well, about 20,000 cuneiform tablets, that's where they wrote in stone, you know, were discovered among the ruins of this region containing Early biblical names, Jehovah, Abram, Esau, David, Michael, Israel, they're all on those stones. Which shows, yeah, this was God's people were living there. But more important was the name of the places found on the tablets. The more recent archaeological digs, 1979. All five cities have been identified. Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zebulun, Bela, which is an old name for Zor. And they were found in that biblical order. Might take the archaeologists a little bit of time to do their work, but when they do it, it doesn't disown the Bible, it confirms the Bible. And we need to remember that. Just wait a few years, I always say, and the truth will out. Don't lose your faith because some scientist, some archaeologist says, oh, these cities didn't exist. This is all myth. You know, they're just behind time a little bit. And when they finally catch up, the scripture will be vindicated. Now we notice in all of this Abraham's lightning action. Once Abraham was informed as to what had happened to his nephew Lot, he immediately sprang into action. Verse 14, he called out his 318 trained men born in his household. This give you an idea how wealthy he is. And they went in pursuit. I think it gives us a better idea of the extent of Abraham's wealth mentioned in verse 2. How much money would it take? I did a little research. How much money would it take to feed 318 men three meals a day? If they got three meals a day, but let's say they did. Three meals a day at $5 per meal, that's 
$4,770 a day to feed 318 men. Okay, let's... At $5 for breakfast, that's $1,590, and $10 for lunch and supper, now we're up to $7,980 per day, or $2,912,700 for the year. Yeah, you heard that right, over $2 million. And that's just for food. That's not clothing. That's not housing, which would be tents. As a Hebrew, verse 13, living in a hostile land, Abraham prudently trained his servants to protect themselves and their households in the event of enemy attack. He was allied with three friends, all Amorites, all brothers, verse 13. But we cannot always count on alliances, can we? Not in dangerous times. Men kind of look out for themselves sometimes. And your allies, hmm, they're just not there. Well, thankfully, Abram had some reputable outlies. Even so, 300 trained men from his own household, plus the three brother alliance, could not outnumber, could not outnumber the armed forces of four kings. But Abraham did not hesitate to pursue these enemies who had kidnapped his nephew Lot. And he issued them a decisive defeat. Okay, how could Abram have beaten such a formidable foe. Yes, he had a military strategy, verse 15. During the night, Abraham divided his men to attack them and routed them. Well, that's good. A surprise attack at night. That's often been the way that battles have been won. You remember the story of Gideon? He had but 300 men. He was awakened by God in the night. Let me read it for you. During the night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp, because I'm going to give it into your hands. Judges 7, verse 9. And he used lights inside clay jars and loud trumpet blasts to terrorize the enemy to fight against itself. Who goes to battle with Lights inside of a pitcher and trumpets. Well, when the battle is the Lord's, you do things like that. Now listen to Melchizedek's analysis of Abram's battle. Verse 19 of our text. He blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed to be Abram the God most, by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who delivers into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Genesis 14, verse 19 and 20. The start of the tithe. Verse 20 and 22. Abram said, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth. 
And brethren, that there's nation of how Abraham and his little few hundred servants could go against these four kings and their armies the land from Dan to Kadesh in the land of Palestine. It's the truth that God often works with little, right? He works with little, with insignificant things, people. So at the end result may be attributed to his mercy and his grace and not to man's prowess. Remember the boy David? He was just a teenager with absolutely no experience as a soldier. Nonetheless, he confronted the giant Goliath of Gath. The champion of the Philistine army. And while all Israel cowered in fear at the magnificent size and strength of this warrior, (coughs) David loaded his shepherd bag with but five smooth stones and a sling. Ever wonder why he took five stones? Oh, he must not have thought. He was going to be very successful against Goliath, and he wanted a little more ammunition for his slingshot. Is that what you think? That's not it. Goliath had five other brothers. And so David was saying, first I'm going to take out Goliath, and then I'm going to take out the brothers if they come out against me. He was ready to do battle with the whole gang. He said to the Philistine, you come out against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And this day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Wow, (laughs) bold talk and perhaps a bit of naivete here for a young Boy, he went on to say, Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. Oh, I love that. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. And he will give all of you into our hands. 1 Samuel 17, verse 45 and following. Abram before David did not rely upon his military strategy, but on the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth. Verse 22. You know, that's the only place of victory in those battles that we face in life. Be they spiritual battles or physical battles, the battle is the Lord's. 
and we can be thankful it is, for what are we <laughs> against such formidable foes? The faithless Israelites who spied out the land of promise came back with this report. Here's what they said to They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us. Yeah, and it does flow with milk and honey. Yeah, it's a lot of wonderful place. And here is its fruit. I mean, they had brought some of it back. But, oh, watch out for the buts. The uh, howevers. The... um, hesitations but the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large we even saw descendants of Anak there the Amalekites live in the Genegev that's the southern part of Israel the Hittites, Jebusites and Amorites live in the hill country, so they pretty well got it covered. And the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. In other words, the whole country is infested with ites. (laughs) Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, but not Israelites. And so they conclude, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. And they said, The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes and, and we look the same to them. Numbers 13, verse 27 and following. <clears throat> grasshoppers. Hmm. Yeah, grasshoppers. That is what we are in and of ourselves as we come up against the wicked and powerful forces of the world. We're just grasshoppers. And if we look at the size and the strength of such enemies, our fear will overtake us and we will fail to act. Men calculate the odds in such situations. They do. Jesus applied this to his disciples. Listen to what he says. Anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? And if he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, verse 27 and following. So either Christ is our champion, 
or he's not. Either we calculate the cost of being his disciple and relinquish our own wisdom and strength, leaning solely upon Christ, or we don't. But for Jesus, there is no halfway commitment. You should know that. For him, the odds did not look good. But the enemy had captured his nephew Lot in Abraham's household. And now they're en route to Syria of all places with nephew Lot in tow. to God to enable him and that was where the victory was Melchizedek verse 29 blessed be the God most high who delivered your enemies into your hands that's always brethren where our victory is it's with Christ and with his strength with his program Now, what are the lessons for our times? Well, number one, when a brother is in danger, you should not waste any time to act favorably. If the, let's, let's, say the, let's say the danger is physical. If the danger is physical, then what? Well, needs that are physical become pretty obvious, right? They need food. If they have insufficient clothing, they need clothes. If they have no place to stay out of the cold, then they need housing. Physical needs are apparent. And in the need, there is the obvious solution. I mean, even secular society acknowledges these needs and attempts to alleviate such things through soup kitchens, thrift shops, shelters, temporary housing, all, by the way, available in Lapeer. And this has so much been the case in America that abuses have arisen. Sometimes we, and we hear about this, have heard about this, people on food stamps there's millions of people in America that get food stamps. What do they do? They go cash them in. They sell them so they can buy liquor and cigarettes. Wow. They don't want the food. So that's charity gone amok. Handouts can have this detrimental effect. People can become used to such And it will result in people thinking that society owes them these things. I'm sad to say, but I think that's where we are. It's an entitlement society that we live in. Now, people could work, but they don't work because government gives them hands out handouts why work when you can get free 
government handouts deter people from going back to work? Do you know, maybe you do know, the government gives so much money per week to people that are unemployed, they make more money in unemployment checks than if they went back to work. They're not stupid. They can figure this out. Let's see. Hmm. Here's my government check. And I got to go back to work. The government gives me $900 a week. If I go back to work, I'm only going to get $400 or $500 a week. I'm sticking with the government. And they do. What's the Christian answer? Well, we address immediate needs. We do. Suppose a brother or sister is without food or daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well. Keep warm. Keep well fed. But does nothing about those physical needs. I'm reading scripture. What good is that? In the same way, faith by itself, if it does not if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. James 2, 15 and following. Bestowing benedictions. Go, I wish you well. Keep warm. Keep well fed. Does little to alleviate the physical needs. James calls this a dead faith, and so it is. And it's dead faith because God has commanded us concerning these issues. Repent of their sins. They questioned him on the practical applications of repentance. And John answered. And the one who has food should do the same. Luke 3, verse 11. What is that? Well, it's dealing with the sin of greed and selfishness and isolationism and despising the poor and so on and so on. It's not new, by the way. It's in the Old Testament, too. Listen to Job. He puts it this If I have denied the desires of the poor, or let the eyes of the widow grow weary, if I have kept my bread to myself, not sharing it with the fatherless, but from my youth I reared him as I would a father, and then from my birth I guided the widow... If I have seen nothing to help those perishing for lack of clothing or a needy man who needs a garment and he hasn't blessed me for warming him with the fleece from my sheep. If I have raised my hand against the fatherless knowing that I had influence in the court 
Then let my arm fall from the shoulder. Let it be broken off at the joint. For I am, I dreaded destruction from God. And for fear of his splendor, I could not do such things. Then these also would be sins to be judged. For I would have been unfaithful to God on high. Job 31 verse 16 and following. Do we know, brethren, that supplying such physical needs to the brethren is a service to Christ? It is. Let me read it for you. Jesus' words, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat, and I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick. You looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Matthew 25, verse 34 and following. And when the disciples could not remember when they had done all these things. Jesus answered, The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Matthew 26, verse 40. Physical need. If there are physical needs, we are to help. Secondly, what about the danger if it's spiritual needs? What then? Let me read it for you. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch out for yourself, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens. And in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Galatians 6 verse 1 and 2. James put it this way. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth. And someone should bring him back. Remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way. Will save him from death. And cover over a multitude of. Of sins. James 5 verse 19 and 20. Or Paul put it this way. As for you. Brothers never tire of doing. What is right. If anyone does not obey. My instruction in this letter. Take special note of him. Do not associate with him. In order that he may feel ashamed. Yet. Yet. Do not regard him as an enemy. But warn him as a brother. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 13 and following. In the case of Lot, I think he was in danger both physically and spiritually. His spiritual danger had been evident in his many wrong choices, not the least of which was his residency in Sin City. 
And his physical danger was now threatening his life and his livelihood. He and his wife were both captives. His possessions had been plundered. Verse 16, Lot was in deep trouble. And Abram spared no time or effort trying to help. Think about this. Would you have been willing to help greedy, self-centered, arrogant, know-it-all Lot? Or would you have said, well, (laughs) hey, he made his bed, let him sleep in it. When times like this arise, keep in mind James' admonition is this. James says, we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone is never at fault in what he says, oh, he's a perfect man. Able to keep his whole body in check. James 3 verse 2. But that's not the case, is it? What is the case is we all stumble in many ways. So act quickly to help a brother or a sister in need. Secondly, God allows for and even commands going to war for a just cause. Remember here that Abraham summoned his 318, it says, trained men to rescue Lot. Trained in what? Well, trained not only in the art of self-defense, which everyone pretty well acknowledges as the right and the duty of caring men when they are under attack, but also trained in the art of offense, Pursuit of an enemy with every intention of reversing his evil plans by any means and freeing those in danger of life and limb. This will mean at times a commitment, get it now, we don't like to think of this, a commitment to war. Gives us the chills. Solomon says there is A time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 8. That's God saying that through Solomon. Diplomacy has its place among reasonable men. It's not wrong to try this first. In fact, we should. James says, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. James 5 verse 20. We should try that. But you know, there would have been no talking to the four kings of the federation who had fought and won the battle in the valley of Sedim where the federation of five had lost. Their cities had been sacked, their people taken captive, their goods plundered. They're not going to abdicate to Abraham's household militia of 318 and give back all that they had won. We beat, we won. And this guy Lot, you're going to go to war for him? We're not giving him up either. 
Brethren, there's no such thing as evil in our world, and those who promulgate evil as wicked men, it's not a myth. There is such a thing as real evil. And there's no talking to them. There's no reasoning. There's no appeal to what's right or moral. They live by their own rules, and God and righteousness are not the foundation of their actions. This is the only explanation of why the Old Testament contains calls from God to deal ruthlessly with the various pagan nations who came against Israel, God's people. It's right to punish evil. It's right to bring the lawless to justice. And that's what we see. Peter makes it crystal clear that we're not to be naive when it comes to assessing the times in which we live. In talking about God's actions, he tells us, God did not spare the people when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. He did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people. He condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes. And he made them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. 2 Peter 2, verse 4 and following. You say, well, I, <laughs> I have no problem with God dealing with the evil of our world, but my problem is the assertion that we should go to war Really? Did you know that most of the time God used his people Israel to fight back and fight against the evil that were present in their day? He was with them, yes. He enabled them, yes. As here with Abram, rescuing Lot. But remember, Abraham himself got on his camp or his donkey, whatever, and he rallied his trained servants and he went after Kerdoleomer as far as necessary. Hobah is north of Damascus. Damascus is, whoa, way up there in Palestine. Verse 15 says, during the night to attack them and rout them for what? Verse 16 to recover all the goods and to retrieve Lot, his possessions, together with the women and the other people. Now, we would be terribly naive to think that no one got killed in that attack. To think that Abram lost, oh, none of his servants in the fight. Or that the soldiers in Ketulamer's army Escaped unscathed. The point, brethren, is not whether people died or that well is, that hell is, excuse me, I'm having trouble, that war is hell on earth. It is. The point is that there is evil in the world. 
And Jesus tells us concerning Satan, he, he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. There's no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar, and he's the father of lies. John 8, verse 44. Do you know you cannot negotiate with liars? You can't. You cannot sweet-talk your freedom from your captors who are hell-bent on decapitating you for being a Christian, which is what is going on in Muslim countries. Oh, well, we'll try to negotiate. Yeah, how's that work out? Abraham was not condemned by God for his fight to win back Lot. No, he was commended. Verse 19, blessed be Abraham by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. He was exonerated for his actions by the highest court there is, God's court. And then finally, whatever just repercussions our brethren reap for their sin... Our task, our task is to rescue, to heal, to restore. Do you get it? Whatever the just repercussions our brethren go through because of their sin, when it comes to our task, we're to rescue them, heal them, restore them. We think, oh, Lot is just reaping what he sowed. That's what's going on here. It was his greedy choice to grab the Jordan Valley for his homeland. Sodom happened to be in the Jordan Valley. But that's where he set up his own residence. So he deserves what he got. Don't you know that? Well, all that might be quite true, but Abraham did not think that way, and neither should we. Instead, we are to think like Paul. How does Paul think? First Corinthians 9.22, to the weak, to the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 22. What was Peter's perspective? Let me read it. Peter says, the end of all things is near. Therefore be clear-minded, self-controlled, so that you can pray. And above all, Love each other deeply because love covers over the multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace. 
in its various forms. And if anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. And if anyone serves, he should do it with the strength that God provides. So that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Writes Peter. Amen. First Peter 4, verse 7 and following. Great thoughts from the word of God when we're struggling with these things of what to do and with those who hate us and despise us and hate our gospel and have no time for God in their lives. And we're trying to do them good and they're ready to kill us. We're telling them the truth. Lord, help us to be more like Jesus, less like ourselves. I mean, who is our father anyway? Is it God the Father or is it Satan? If we have murder in our hearts, it's Satan. For he was a murderer from the beginning, Jesus said. Oh, and also a liar. No truth abides in him. So are we going to be truth speakers or liars? Are we going to be murderers? Are those that hold out grace and life to those dead and dying? Lord, please help us to be dispensers of grace, the gospel of grace, and to love those who hate us. Who knows but such grace bestowed might change a heart, might soften that hard heart and bring them to know Jesus. We can't just preach to people, Lord. We have to live out our faith in front of them and in trying times. So they might see our good works, the scripture says, and glorify God. I think we're often accused of just being talkers and not doers of the word. And James wrote a whole book about that in the Bible. Be doers of the word, not just talkers. And that's when people will be convicted that, well, maybe we have something to bless their lives that they don't have. I pray that you'll help us to be solid solid witnesses for Jesus, our Savior, in whose name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen. Our closing hymn is from Trinity Hymnal, number 486. 486 in Trinity.
child of God for now and all of eternity. And the forces of hell have no power over the blood of Christ. Our Father, we thank you for the truth that the blood of Jesus covers all of our sins, washes them away, atones for them. So there's no judgment left for us we are cleansed we are justified in your sight not ours in your sight which is the judge of the universe the one before whom all mankind must stand so if we're exonerated if we are forgiven if we're cleansed if we're covered by the blood of Jesus, that is the safest place we can be in the universe. And we got to say, thank you, Lord, for coming. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your righteous life. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Help us to live our lives in a thankful way and to take the good news of the gospel to our friends and neighbors and our relatives. In Christ's name, amen.